0: Hi everyone my name is natalie and this is the next page the podcast of the un geneva library and archives We are back here at the Library and Archives after summer break. There's lots of great projects going on in the next few months, so check out the details and the news over on Facebook and Twitter, and some of our projects include some great conversations here on the podcast. Today we have a guest who's joined us in a previous episode in her former role as the Director of the Division of Conference Management here at UN Geneva. She's now the executive director of the Kofi Annan Foundation. It's Corinne Momal-Vagnon. It was great to have her back here in the studio for this episode, where she's in conversation with our director, Francesco Pisano. After having worked for more than three decades in the UN system, Corinne shares about her new role and the work and the values of the Kofi Annan Foundation. And she also shares her reflections on multilateralism and the current state of the UN today, including some of the challenges it's facing, but also opportunities for how the UN can move forward as we look to multilateralism in the future we also hear her thoughts on women, gender equality and parity, and leadership in international organizations, and the values she's inspired by from some of our past and present leaders here at the UN. We've got some more resources in the podcast notes, as well as links to previous episodes with Corinne and other people she mentions in the conversation. Hope you're inspired as much as we are. Let's go.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today I am joined by Corinne Momal-Bagnan, who is the executive director of the Kofi Annan Foundation. She also has around 30 years of experience in the UN, so huge experience there. And this is a great opportunity for me to have a conversation with her about the values of the Kofi Annan Foundation, United Nations, women and leadership, women in leadership. But first of all, Corinne, tell our audience a little bit about yourself.
2: Good morning, Francesco. Yes, as you said, I'm a UN person through and through. I joined the organization at the tender age of 23 and left it this year, 33 years uh, after a career of 33 years and I worked, uh, I did absolutely everything during this career. I was in four different uh, duty stations in Geneva, in New York, in Bangkok, in Baghdad, where I started. And I did absolutely everything. And my last post was as director of conference management here at the Palais de Nations. Enjoyed it thoroughly and then decided it was time for a change and became um, executive director of the Kofi Annan Foundation on uh, the 15th of June this year. So very recent.
1: And this is an amazing change, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, the first part of our conversation, it's fair enough. It should be about the Kofi Annan Foundation. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the foundation, its history, its values, you know, what, what's in there so that our audience can learn a little bit more about the Kofi Annan Foundation.
2: Sure, thank you. you. know, as as often with these foundations that are created by a big leader. It started by being Kofi Annan's private office, really. When he stepped down as a Secretary General, he was still very active in mediation. He was often asked to deliver uh, important speeches and so on. So he needed a, a private office, so he set up this foundation. But immediately he was drawn into working on a mediation in Kenya. And uh, therefore, the foundation grew into what it is today, a, a private foundation with very well established programs but there are still based on Kofi Annan's values and his centers of interest and those were peace so mediation but peace building peace building trust among communities uh, democracy because he thought that uh, democracy was the best experiment at government ever youth leadership he was he always had an amazing uh, relationship with young people and uh, international cooperation. What does it mean to be a multilateral leader? I mean, how do you encourage people to talk to each other and so on? So that those are those were his ideas, his interest, and they are very much still at the core of the what the foundation does. It's a small foundation. We work through others. We will not grow. It's, it's twelve people. It's small. It's nimble, and uh, that's the way we want to keep it.
1: So in terms of how the foundation translates all these values in actual work around the world, can you give us one or two examples of your maybe your flagship programs and what they do in terms of impact?
2: Absolutely. Let me take, for instance, two flagship programs. We work a lot on uh, elections and it's not so much technical assistance because a lot of others are much bigger and do that better than us and we don't have the resources to be in the field, the monitoring ballot boxes and stuff. But it's really what we call electoral mediation. So we go in countries before elections to talk to the different parties and make sure that they will behave, that uh, they will accept the results of the elections, that the elections will be conducted fairly. And right now we're looking a lot at the uh, role of social media in the uh, atmosphere around around elections. So that's one of the flagship uh, program. And the other one is Extremely Together. It's a very successful program of young leaders fighting, uh, preventing violent extremism around the world because that's uh, what Kofi Annan thought is, you know, you, you prevent violent extremism by t- talking to people and showing them another way.
1: And for you as an individual, I know you've been in touch with Kofi Annan when he was in the UN, more than in touch, it was once you defined him as your mentor. Mm. And so how does that make it different for you now that you're executive director, mm-hmm. so you don't just become executive director of a foundation like that just because you are qualified for it. It's also a value-based thing and also a sort of a mission, let's call it that way. Now, for you, in your special case, you knew coffee much better than everyone else, much better than, than, than I knew him. And how it is to sort of being in his seat, in a way, for you today?
2: Well, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm going to be much humbler than this. I'm definitely not in his seat. And, you know, interestingly, Francesco, one of the requirements for this post was to have known Kofi Annan personally. So the board of the foundation knew that it was very important to have someone there who had been marked by the man, you know. And for me, it's just, uh, it feels like going home as well. You know the UN is home, but it feels like going home because our mission is also to convey the Kofi Annan way, his values, his way. You know, bring people together, let them talk, respect everybody. Respect is for him. It was so important that the inherent dignity of every single human being, and that's at the core of what we do. So it feels it feels like so comfortable, Francesco, and so natural. But it's true that they wanted someone who had experience seen the man in action because I mean, I can try in my very humble way to convey some of his values and his ways.
1: Now to the executive director of the Coffinan Foundation, tell us a little bit about your vision for the foundation. What's in store for the future under your tenure?
2: Sure. You know, these are, these are tough times for a lot of uh, NGOs and uh, foundations because of the COVID uh, crisis, obviously. But what I found, and coming to the foundation at a time like this was was really challenging. But what I found was that Kofi Annan had already established clearly what the foundation should do. So we have with the board, we are working on a strategic framework for the next few years, But that wasn't a huge difficulty because the programs are well established. The vision is there. He wants, he, you know, his motto was for a fairer, more peaceful world. And we are adding that the mission of the foundation is to help build peaceful, democratic, and resilient societies. So that was done. And I just needed to look at the program a little bit, make them a coherent whole. But most of that had been done by the man himself and uh, by my predecessor, of course, Alan Doss, who was president of the foundation. But what we need to do now is modernize it a little bit, bring it into uh, this uh, century in the sense that there are issues that are unavoidable now, not unavoidable, but that are at the core of international cooperation, climate change, gender equality for instance that the foundation will deal more with in the future than it has in the in the past um and of course we need to also we need to build a a very solid financial model and that's when i was talking about the difficulties that ngos and foundations are having at the moment i mean to be very very frank the uh, the financial environment is very difficult for Organizations that don't have an endowment. And that's our case. We don't have an endowment. So we have long time partners, governments, foundations, individuals that support us. But they are being pulled from lots of different directions with the COVID relief in particular. But the, the future in terms of substance, the future of the, of the foundation is in democracy, is in peace, is in youth leadership, is in multilateralism and in conveying, again, in conveying the Kofi Annan way of resolving issues.
1: Now, many of these uh, elements that you mentioned, democracy, youth, leadership, are also enshrined in the United Nations. Now, you said it yourself, you've been 33 years (laughs) in the UN, and um, you've done, using your words, almost anything (laughs) and everything in, in the UN. I would like to go back a little bit to that long experience to see whether you... From your new observation deck, looking back, you can actually see trends in this organization. So you have witnessed most of the evolution of the modern UN in the post-colonization period. Ten years, as it it were, longer than my experience. I have 27 years, actually, in the UN. And when I came in the UN, I, I today realized that it was pretty different. From 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 today and the environment around the UN, the environment that creates the dynamics and then the UN uses to digest and process international relations, as, as we call them, was different. That environment has changed a lot. So, to you, the person who is now out of the organization and can look back with serenity and maybe different lens before your eyes, can you tell us a little bit about what do you think? are the trends in the organization, both the good ones and the bad ones.
2: Right. You know, once I came to one of your very, very interesting talks at the library, uh, Francisco, that was uh, Mrs. Bertini, who was a long-time UN staffer as well, had uh, filled very important positions, including that being the head of WFP, and she showed us a, a curve regarding the life of international organizations. One of these traditional... Uh, Management consultant curve that you see with the life of an organization from its birth to the teenage years to mm-hmm. maturity. And and I was very worried because you know it looked to me at the, the the life of an organization after growing was going into maturity, aristocracy, then bureaucracy, and then living death, and then death or rebound. So um, to be very, very frank, uh, Francisco, I think we are going through a very difficult period at the United Nations, mostly because of external factors. We know the state of international relations between member states. When uh, 20 years ago, as you defined, the, as, you, as you mentioned, the organization was different, but mostly because the international environment was very different. In the '90s there was so, such hope about international cooperation, that things would work. You know, the veto was used much less in the Security Council. There was, there was great hope that things could be done in a, you know, you, you had all these big UN conferences, the Conference on Social Development, the Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 93. I mean, the 90s were a series, the Conference on Population and Development in 94. So you had all this agenda, this, this hope that international cooperation would yield a better world um and it continued into the early 2000s and that was i think the apex of the united nations of course because again we we just reflect the environment and then unfortunately tensions growing tensions that are linked to many things and the the pressing uh, challenges that we uh, are seeing in terms of climate change and inequalities meant that the tension those those tensions took over the united nations frankly i think the the tensions between uh, member states are reflected profoundly in the inability today of the United Nations to take courageous stance on many things. And that's probably unavoidable. But at the same time, there are faults within the organizations in terms of we have gone through how many reforms have we gone through, you and me, Francesco? How many reforms? Each time we were promised that things would be simplified, every single time things have become more complicated for people inside the organization. So the, the, the sheer weight of the bureaucracy, and I'm not, I mean, I was a bureaucrat. I don't despise it. I, I I know that rules and regulations are what is needed for an organization this side to work. But the sheer weight of it, people have forgotten that these rules and regulations are not uh, are not the end, but the aim to the end, the, the means to the end. So I think the bureaucracy has taken over in many ways, and that is, that is frankly, at times I found it suffocating. And the, lack, the fact that we have sometimes lost the uh, the view of what matters really, so that's that's. I mean, it's a rather harsh judgment, but I think many share it. Uh, so there is still some. I mean, most people are amazing in the organization. The mandates are amazing. People, a lot of people do amazing things. So I have full hope that we will rebound. I don't think we will go from this living death into complete death. I have full hope that we will rebound because there is no choice. There is no better organization to take care of many things. There is no choice. We will rebound, but I do think that things are, are very difficult and a bit uh, dispiriting at the moment.
1: So would you say that the, uh, the negative trend is this increase in the relative weight of bureaucracy plus an environment that is less conducive to international cooperation while, while the positive one is actually the people people who work for the organization that have acquired many more skills i think uh, throughout the 90s and the 2000s they're more open they're more inclusive there is there is a trend in the staffers that, that that you know goes towards inclusivity participatory system thinking mm-hmm. all these new things plus the social media usage plus the progress uh, in in technology in the way they applies would you would you say that, that summarizes a little bit you're thinking?
2: Absolutely, completely, in fact. I think uh, the quality and the skills of the people, I mean, this organization is so lucky because it can afford to get the crème de la crème of the people of the world. It's amazing. I mean, we get fantastic young people in here that have amazing degrees, but more, more than that, that have a moral compass, that have a, a really a desire to change things and, and that are fantastic with the IT, that are fantastic with, as you said, all kinds of innovative ways of, of working. So I, that's why I'm, I'm fundamentally optimistic for the long term because the, of the quality of the people. And you have said it right, I mean, things have improved. It's not, it's not all been downhill at all. For instance, in terms of gender equality, clearly the conditions for women are much better now in the organization than they were. I mean, the numbers at least are much better. In terms of of, uh, diversity, inclusion, and so on, we are much better than we used to be.
1: Yet, the issue is how an organization that is going through a difficult time, to use your words, can lead the world through or towards reshaping multilateralism. Now, there is something I firmly believe is that this formula of multilateralism has run its course. And when I hear people talking about the future of multilateralism, I feel like I should stand up and shout, let's talk about the multilaterals of the future because this one is basically become very hard to use or unusable. It's your choice. So my question to you is, do you have views on how an organization like ours, the UN today, can become a leading force towards reshaping multilateralism so that we can uphold international cooperation instead of losing it?
2: I don't have a magic wand. I don't have uh, uh, more brilliant ideas than the many people who have written about this. But I want to I want to highlight maybe two things. One is that we have to understand once and for all that yes we are an organization. I mean, we I still say we for the United Nations, but the UN is an organization of governments. Yes, but we need to talk to other people. So that's fundamental. So and and it is already in our rules, I mean, the ECOSOC uh, has, uh, with great uh, foresight, in the 90s passed a resolution to allow NGOs to speak in its various fora. I wish other uh, bodies would do that. So, But unfortunately, the space for civil society, which should be increasing, is under much pressure. And I, and I saw it. I saw it here at the United Nations, at the Palais des Nations, where we were under much pressure from... Some colleagues even inside the organization and some, and some member states to, for instance, not let NGOs organize meetings here at the Palais unless it was blessed by, by member states, which of course defeats the whole purpose. So that's one thing. We have to, we have to speak to other actors. And the second thing is we have to be more courageous. And I would say that the defining thing that is missing at the moment is courage. So uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the second secretary general of the UN, said that the three main qualities for international civil servants, and of course he he invented the international civil service, were loyalty, integrity, and I don't remember the third one, but he said that loyalty, integrity, and independence, of course, because he was asked to resign, but he refused. And he said that courage is the one that allows you to uphold the three, you know? And at the moment, I'm very sorry to say I see a lack of courage in many people. And it's not it's because we have been cowed into sub- submission. But we think we're I mean and, and I find this extraordinary. Some of our colleagues are terrified constantly of what Member States would think will think of us if we say this member states want us to speak our mind. What what use are we to, to them if we the experts Try to tell them what we think they want to hear. We need to tell things as they are, you know. We need to tell member states, this is, this is going to work. This is not going to work. Don't micromanage us. And and uh, then things would get better. I think that will be, that will be key to the renaissance of the UN, would be to re-instill courage into the Secretariat.
1: That's very powerful, mm-hmm. and I totally agree with you. Now you said you have no magic wand. Suppose I gave you one right now. And I asked you, so I give you this magic wand, and I ask you, what is the one thing, only one, that you go back, you know, one day in the UN, you go back tomorrow with your magic wand, you don't tell anybody you got this fantastic weapon, and you change one thing. What would that be?
2: I hesitate between two things, There's, uh, so I'm going to give you two. <laughs> All
1: <'Cause> right.
2: <laughs> it's not a magic wand, it's actually a genie in bottle that gave me two wishes. So first of all, I think the most important for the credibility and legitimacy of the UN going on is is changing the composition of the Security Council. That would be the key huh, for the future because we see it now. We see it for the last ten years. This is where the the blockages are. The main blockages are, and it's just not normal uh, that the the current composition of the Security Council is is just not doesn't reflect the world today. So that would be one. And the second, which would be Less political, less important would be to dismantle the fifth committee of the General Assembly, okay? Because that committee and the way it works is at the source. Is at the source of 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 the rot of many things in the Secretariat. Okay, it's just not normal, and it's it's our fault as much as the member states. But we need to work differently. We cannot have a, a someone at the level of the Secretary General that has to explain to member state every single little chair he moves in this organization. This is not, I mean, I studied management. I I manage a big division. You cannot be held, uh, you cannot have to account for every single thing you do. You have to have independence as managers, and then you're accountable for the overall results.
1: I'm afraid that many, many listeners, God bless them, don't know what the fifth oh, committee is. Would go. you like to just in one yes, sentence tell the world them, yes. what the fifth committee sure, is? Sure, sure. It's fifth... a committee of the General yes, Assembly yes. that
2: the, the committee the General Assembly works through through committees that look at different issues, legal issues, uh, social economic issues, human rights, and it has one that deal with the administrative and budgetary matters, and unfortunately it has taken over the rest. And this is just wrong. I mean, the finance is super important. Of course, the money is uh, rules, but it should, not, it should not trump the substance.
1: Thank you for that. Moving forward to um, the last part, maybe, of our conversation that has to do with you as a professional, your experience as a woman in international relations, in leadership, you have led, you have managed a lot you have led a lot. I've seen you in leadership position. I've seen you leading, leading people and leading subject matters. It was an, a great pleasure for me to 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 work together with you when you were here. And I often say that I I learned a lot from you on punctual things, but also in style things. So I think you magically landed where this all pattern took you. Uh, in your current <laughs> position, I think you really summarize a lot of the values and to dos and don'ts that you have learned in the organization can serve you now where you are. Is exactly director of the Kopiarnat Foundation. But when I go back into through my memories, I also see the colleague who has fought the most for impeding that we normalize certain syndromes, very large organizations have biases in terms of uh, gender. Parity, opportunities, youth in particular, all those things. So in a way to help those youngsters, any particular young women out there who are listening to us with your experience, I'd like to to have you talk a little bit about, you know, what is being a female professional in today's international organizations. They're very different from large corp- corporations. For some things, they're better. For others, are worse, actually, I think. But, you know, you have gone through all the stages of a career in the UN, up to D2, which is the senior director level. So it's, it's, it's director two, basically. And so you have huge experience. These women out there are either wanting to have a career in the UN or they're having problems in their career. They're asking themselves... The questions that all women, but also when I was in my 30s and I joined the UN, I had also questions on, on that kind of things. But I think women today are still a little bit disadvantaged in our organization, both because of biases in, in humans around them and biases in the organization. So what is your view about being a female professional, woman professional in large organizations today in the UN system?
2: I think it, it varies a lot from agency to agency. I think the culture of each agency uh, defines how easy it's going to be for a woman to to work there or not. Overall, the UN system has made a lot of progress in numbers and the Secretary General has really made it its crusade and he's succeeded in, in increasing the numbers of women at the highest level very fast. And, the, you know, he really has to be given credit for this because this was unprecedented. At the same time, the culture takes much longer to fix than the numbers. The numbers are the easiest thing to fix, but the number, uh, the culture takes much longer. There are things in, you know, things have improved a lot on on some aspects of the culture. Clearly, the type of uh, sexist jokes that were told around me when I started 30 years ago uh, are no longer acceptable and people have internalized that. Colleagues have internalized that so they know what is acceptable or not, clearly. Exactly. The second thing that has changed a lot is the flexibility of the organization in terms of working arrangements. And the, if one good thing comes out of this pandemic is that the organization now knows that, you know, people can work from home at different times. And this, this will be, I mean, management literature has shown that flexible working arrangements are actually one of the most important factors in helping women through their careers. So and it will it will help also men of course, but it it has been shown to help women in their career. So I think in in those respects things will improve a lot, have improved a lot. With regard to profoundly how women are perceived, which is much more intangible and much more difficult to measure, I think we still I think we still have a long time to uh, much progress to to make. I was absolutely shocked, uh, Francesco. I was in a meeting through video conference, which the Secretary General had with many under-Secretary Generals. And one under-Secretary General, major woman, said to the Secretary General, we have a problem with women managers, female managers. To which the Secretary General said, no, I don't think we have a problem with female managers. We may have a problem with managers in general. But there is still this perception, frankly, very ingrained. And this was was an under-Secretary General with a woman under-Secretary General with a lot of authority and power who said this. And I was absolutely shocked because this reflected all the prejudices and all the biases that we have. So I don't think we have a problem with the women managers. I think we have a problem with staff accepting authority from uh, women managers. And I I experienced it. I mean, I've had a very, I was, I had a wonderful career. I had wonderful colleagues. So I didn't experience this, I think, myself. But I did see some of my uh, female colleagues trying to do their best, really their best, and being questioned at every turn for things that they did, while their predecessors, men predecessors, were, you know, although everybody thought they did terribly, nobody sort of questioned it. That was it. That was the manager, and he did. it. So I think there is something very deeply culturally ingrained in in us that, makes it very difficult to accept women's authority. So I think that's where we have to work. And there is, again, there definitely, even the, the the genie in the bottle could not help me there. I think it will take a very long time, and we just have to work on it. But I think women have to be conscious of this. And I think if you look at the numbers today, I haven't seen the numbers, but I'd be very interested to see how many cases of abuse of authority management and everything are brought against top, women direct, at the director level against the men. I am quite convinced that the number of women who have cases against them, uh, director, uh, female directors who have cases against them, is much higher. And again, it doesn't mean that they're worse managers at all. It just means that people do not accept the fact that they are managers. So they are now. The Secretary General has placed them, has made sure that we have. But the environment is still not very supportive.
1: So one of the things that is commonly considered as unacceptable is is right to what you said it's going to take a long time, and it's considered unacceptable that it should take that long time. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary General has been adamant. You know, he has quotes like, you know, if we go with at this at this pace, it would take a couple of centuries because before we have uh, uh, total parity in terms of opportunities and treatment. So we, I think, I do agree it's unacceptable. So one remedy against. To, this to shorten time is typically leadership, and in large organizations, we have seen, for example, in large corporations in the world, how leadership has actually changed the culture much much faster than uh, than other you know processes, typically schools of thoughts and you know consultants, etc. Those you mentioned before. So let's go to leadership a little bit. Um, as you know, you went to Geneva for the first time in the history of the galaxy as a director general who's not a man, as I like to say. And this woman is certainly bringing a new way of leading. And I don't know if that qualifies as a classical woman leadership style, but it's a different style. So I do believe that women lead differently. And I also believe that women leadership is much more attuned to the era we're living now than a couple of centuries ago. Mm -hmm. And there are are reasons for that. And there is a lot of research in in leadership, especially in American universities, that show that leadership is becoming a practice that does more in terms of creativity and participation than in leading out of the blue, just follow Mm -hmm. me. And because I'm a leader, that makes all of you followers, right? And it's more like collective leadership, Mm -hmm. natural leadership, creative leadership. And I, I, I... Believe that is actually what's happening in the world of leadership is changing like that. So, I, I would be interested in listening what is for you leadership. Being a woman is that different, really? Do you agree with me, or maybe you don't? And one thing that you may agree or don't, but I hope you do, is that leadership has no age. This this thing that you become a leader because you're older and you have experience, I, I absolutely don't believe in it. So, if you would have also advice for young women in leadership, or how to approach leadership when you're a young professional, woman professional, that would be great for our audience.
2: Well, these are very, very complex uh, issues. You know, it's true. I I don't know. I I really don't, frankly, don't know whether women have have intrinsically a different way of leading. What I know is that leadership, even if you look today at the questions that are asked of uh, people applying for leadership positions in the United Nations, you know, they have to define a vision, they have to show that they can make decisions, you know. So we have this vision, we have this view of a leader that is all-powerful and takes all decisions and decides and will guide us through the, and will open the the, the Red Sea for us, you know. But that's not what it is for me, you know. What, as I said from the start, we have amazing people in this organization and the true qualities, at uh, the true leader will go and identify the people who are willing and able to uh, lead at their level. And you're right, you know, there are all kinds of different leaders at all kinds of different levels. And the people who want, who want to improve things, the people who want to innovate, the people who believe in the organization, and they, the people who have secret skills, that talents that we have, that they have never been able to show because we've pigeonholed them in very specific functions. So this, this is the leader is the person who's going to go and look for these people, bring them together, get ideas from them, and then make it possible for them to implement their ideas. A good leader doesn't necessarily have to have good ideas himself or herself, you know, but they have to be able to open their ears wide and open their eyes so that they can see who can really make a difference and how you can improve the conditions for everybody so that they can do their best. And that is not traditionally the way that we have looked at leaders. And I have to tell you that I think the world of our Director General, I think she has brought freshness fun and, and also creativity to the to the role. And she has a completely different style. Her predecessor was amazing, the, the previous director general. But it's wonderful that we have such different styles. I don't know whether she has this style because I maybe the fact that she's a woman and she certainly has had to work very, very hard to get where she is, maybe that gives her a special insight about how it's hard for others. And... Patience as well, maybe. But she certainly has a very different style that has been very refreshing. Now, for young women to, to really tackle this question of leadership, as I said, what, what you said, Francesco, is really right. They have to understand that they can lead at all levels. They don't need the UN hierarchical uh, position of D1 or D2 or B5 to lead. They can show the way at all kinds of levels. That's one important thing. The second thing is that they have to speak up, of course, and this is not something that we have been taught culturally to do. They have to take their place, but they have to speak up on showing uh, what they can do. So they really have to uh, find ways to show their talents, and that takes a lot of supportive managers to provide the conditions where they can do that. So it's not only, I mean, a lot of fantastic young women colleagues just cannot succeed because the conditions are not there, and it's not it's not their fault at all. It's just because the conditions around them, their managers, or the just the organization doesn't allow it. So they shouldn't also beat themselves up if they're not succeeding because sometimes it's just it's just not your fault.
1: On gender parity, now just to close this part on on your experience in uh, being a, a woman professional and also on, on leadership, I, I remember the many discussions we had when you when you were in the UN, and you always were on the ball in terms of gender parity, and we worked together and you worked a lot for the gender parity, uh, the gender policy that we have in this organization, of which I'm extremely proud together with many other professionals here. Maybe a couple of tips, maybe one or two concrete tips that you use as a, as a leader in your organization, or you have used and have shown to work to ensure gender parity to make it more likely to create the condition for gender parity and i'm asking you this because there is a lot of talk about this and there is much less concrete things that people can actually go to the office and do put into being so that there is more gender parity
2: i think one thing that that uh, should be done is really trust young women much more with important tasks and because of our structures it's difficult sometimes. But you just have to give young women important projects and let them run with it, basically, and let them show what they can do. I think that's that's not something that we do easily, and that's key to to gender parity. I think whether you know, I did it in the, I, I tried to do it, for instance, in the innovation team that we built for the division of conference management at the UN Office in, in Geneva, where I gave them total freedom, and out of at the start, you know, the, the innovation team out of 11 people, there were 10 women who stepped forward. So I gave them the opportunity to step forward and to show that they could run with projects. And I think that's very—that's one thing that we can do. So so that this first thing is about not pigeonholing people. Because we recruit them for specific functions that need to be done, of course. But often people can do other things as well. So we have to let them do that. The second thing is what I mentioned earlier is being very, very flexible about, about presence in the office, about, you know, letting people work remotely if they want at at their rhythm as long as the work is done. I really don't care uh, as long as people show up when they're required, but otherwise let them do their work. And, uh, and that will help women tremendously.
1: And talking about giving young women professional opportunities, I want to stop and acknowledge that the whole... The Next Page podcast program is run by one young female professional, Natalie Alexander, who's also the producer of these episodes. And uh, she's doing a fantastic job. And she was given by me one year ago carte blanche completely to design this program. And the program is one of the most successful knowledge programs that we run the in the, in the library. So it certainly works. It takes a little bit of uh, not even courage. What it took for me was to break the standards with which decisions and jobs are, are assigned to to people. And I think that this is normal in large organizations that they get crystallized in their ways. And I think it's normal that large organization from time to time run into people like me or you let break these crystals in smaller parts and see what happens. And this is where innovation typically uh, comes from.
2: That's a wonderful example, Francesco. I really have to say, I mean, this podcast series, but everything that you've done with the with the comments at the this learning comments and a lot of things at the library are wonderful example of empowering young people. So thank you for that, really. Well,
1: thank you so much mm-hmm. for recognizing it. And I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad that, that you say it because it's not always easy, but it always pays. That, that is my experience. Corinne, as we draw to a close, maybe you want to address your final thoughts to, to the audience in terms of going back to the Kofi Annan Foundation, in terms of what you see in the future and the path of the organization. What do you want people to remember about the organization that you're leading today?
2: I would like people to remember that Kofi Annan stood for what he believed was right and he paid a very heavy price for it when he was secretary general he had very difficult times with some member states because he stood up for what was right and uh, this is what the foundation is about but i think if i have also one message for young colleagues or others in the united nations system just stand up for what is right and what you believe and sometimes it will be very tough but you will never regret it so i think this is look at, remember that That time when Kofi Annan was asked to resign as Secretary General, uh, this is the only time I heard him curse and he said to the journalists, hell no, I will not resign. And he echoed uh, Dag Hammarskjöld in that, who was also asked to resign, and he said, I will not step down. And sometimes the easiest thing is to walk away. But they stood firm and they did what they thought was right. And uh, this is what, the, this is the message and the values we're trying to convey in in the foundation, and this is what uh, the United Nations is all about and should be all about.
1: Corinne Vagnon, executive director of the Kofi Annan Foundation. Thank you so much for spending this time with us and our audience. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Francesco. Great pleasure.